Hi there, I'm Jessie Cook and you're listening to Dance Season 2, an evidence-based, research-informed dance science podcast. I'm here today with Karen Suds, who has over 30 years of experience in both the pedagogical and artistic performance aspects of dance. Karen is an accomplished dance educator, founder and director of Crossings Dance School and an advocate for the integration of dance science research and practice in the dance studio. Karen holds an MSc in dance science from the University of Wolverhampton, alongside various other qualifications. Karen has been a presenter at the Performing Arts and Medicine Association, International Association of Dance Medicine and Science, and Healthy Dancer Canada. In addition to pursuing a passion for continual learning, Karen has been a guest lecturer at the University of Calgary in Dance Pedagogy and Dance Science, along with presenting her research as part of the Faculty of Kinesiology's Research Rounds. Karen is the co-president of Healthy Dancer Canada with a mandate to develop key partnerships within the Canadian and global dance community while continuing to provide education, promoting diversity and creating opportunities to advocate for the health and well-being of all those involved in this industry. Hi Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm fine. I'm excited to be here with you. Me too. Um, I always start with a little bit about yourself. So a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, I'm from Canada and I grew up in a very small ski town called Banff and uh, there were no dance classes. So it was a little bit of um, unusual compared to a lot of places, but we were a ski town. And so I downhill ski raced and I figure skated and it was really through figure skating that I loved um, creating movement and I loved wearing costumes and makeup and sequins. And um, I just really wanted to dance. It was through figure skating that I really um, got my first dance classes, but there really wasn't anywhere in my town for me to continue on um, and take that any further until I moved to the city after as soon as I finished high school and I started taking as many dance classes. I went from, you know, maybe a few dance classes in my life to about 25 hours of dance immediately (laughs) because I was just so hungry to learn how to dance. And so I started taking them at studios in the city. And of course, this was now 18, 19 years old. So it wasn't as if I was starting as a child. Um, Then I started taking um, dance classes at the University of Calgary through their dance program. And again, just, you know, I was just consumed by it because that's what I, I had always longed to be able to dance. So coming in late um, to dance, I think, you know, obviously it was challenging because I didn't have that foundation. I was thrown in at the deep end because I think because of my sport background, I was strong and I had a good sense of movement (laughs) and risk, you know, especially downhill ski racing, you you, um, have to have a certain amount of willingness to go fast and uh, take risks. So I just jumped in. And so it was really through that. And then, you know, long story short, um, I got married and I had two children and we moved overseas and I kept dancing everywhere I went and started training more, you know, performing more pre-professionally with different groups around the world. I was in Singapore, I was in Australia as well. And then we came back to Canada and my daughter started, I put her in a dance class and went to see the recital and I was appalled. 
um, just at, I don't know, you're probably too young, Jazzy, but um, I don't know if anybody that's listening will remember Shania Twain, whose bed, of, whose bed have your boots been under? <laughs> a country Western song. Um, anyway, not appropriate for seven-year-olds to be dancing to in little crop tops and, you know, booty shorts. And I thought, I have to be able to offer something other than this. And so I actually, from that, started my own school. Uh, for that reason, I just thought, I want to do something that is healthy for kids, you know, that's age appropriate, that helps them develop technique and artistry, gives them a voice. I've always been more about the holistic aspect of dance, that dance can be part of our whole life and can be nurturing for us. And I think probably because I didn't have that early background to know any different. So to me, dance really was something I made a decision as a young adult to pursue. Um, I didn't have a lot of baggage with me. So it was through that that I started my dance school. And that was like over 30 years ago now. Um, so obviously that's grown, but it's still a focus of our school is more than more than dancing, it's about, you know, community and relationships. And it's about the kids leaving the school stronger than they came in, whether that's, you know, both physically and psychologically, you know, what we want to feed into them and, and nurture them as mainly women, uh, young women, but as strong young women that have a voice and show them how dance can help um, give them that voice. So we really encourage um, their own choreography. We, we do uh, at least once a year, we do a senior choreography show where they, we partner them up, mentor them with other choreographers and so help them express that. So yeah, dance has always been more to me than purely technique. And how I got into the dance science stream was I, I was injured skiing. So I blew out my knee skiing and I did all of the rehab and everything. Uh, in the meantime, I also um, certified with, uh, as a Pilates teacher. So a lot of my rehab was Pilates based, but I still could not get myself strong enough to teach dance. I mean, now I'm in well into my thirties. So my recovery was not as quick and getting up and down off the floor to teach little ones. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And finally, my son got so tired of me not going skiing with him and, or, you know, as a family that he said, he's a rugby player. He said, why don't you go come to the gym I go to and do some strength training? And I had never stepped foot in a gym. So I, I went and I thought I interviewed with a strength and conditioning coach. And I thought, yeah, what can you tell me about movement? You know, I've been, this is my life. This is all I've done. I thought, okay, I'll give you three shots, <laughs> three attempts. <laughs> and, you know, I went the very first time we got up to the squat bar and I did my first few squats thinking, I'm going to just ace this. Watch, wait, you watch me squat. And realized I didn't know how to squat. And as soon as we put a load on it, I was terrible. <laughs> and immediately, I guess the bar at a squat rack reminded me of the bar in a ballet class. You know, it was just such um, basic movement, but for some reason I couldn't do it. 
And um, it, we know that, you know, it's the first three weeks of a training program that you see the most results. So of course, I saw at, in my usual um, bite off everything I can chew, I jumped in, you know, four times a week. So, <laughs> but within three weeks, I was back teaching. And it was that process, I thought, oh my goodness, had I had this when I was younger, or if my dancers had this now, they, you know, they might not ever even get injured. Like this could make them so strong, it can change how they move. And so I worked with the strength and conditioning coach that, um, who was my coach. And I said, I started throwing ideas around. So our training sessions became, you know, brainstorming sessions. How could we apply this to dance? And I convinced, I think it was 15 of my dancers and their parents that we would go in and we would do a pilot. And I would, we would take them in twice a week into this gym. So it wasn't in the studio. We actually went to a big gym and the strength and conditioning coach worked with them. The first time out, three pulled hamstrings. So a lot of them were very upset. They, a few of them were throwing up because they were doing a circuit and it just went all like, oh my goodness. So even now looking back, I mean, we didn't know what we were doing to take untrained that way dancers in and throw them in a gym and say, we're just going to treat you like immediately, like every other athlete in the building. And they just weren't prepared for it. Um, so, you know, I came in a little bit like a bulldozer with it because I was so sure it was going to help them. Um, and it did, you know, it did end up helping them, but it also created some problems for me in my dance school with my uh, teachers with some of the students and with some of the parents because it seemed that I was more interested I was going more that direction than dance and so I needed to know more about this because I knew that there was a whole lot I really didn't know and that's how I found out about dance science so I started researching how can I find out more and I think it was in 2004 13 or 14, I heard about IADAMS and went to my first IADAMS conference in Switzerland, in Basel, went by myself. I didn't know anything about IADAMS. It was absolutely overwhelming to hear. I'd never heard an academic presentation and I thought they were actually really mean to the people when, when people would get up and ask questions because in dance, we don't really do that. We don't really challenge each other's ideas and say, where did you get that? Where's that from? Well, you know, we're, I would spent years creating um, for the dance company I was the director of creating synopsis for, you know, program notes and stuff where I could make up whatever I wanted to about what this show was about <laughs> and take all kinds of artistic license. And now I'm, it, this is still dance, but now you have to have some backing for what you say. You can't just fire off things, you know, you had. So that really surprised me. And so it was through that that I ended up um, looking for a way that I could do my master's. And the University of Wolverhampton had a program that was module based, which worked really well for me living in Canada and being able to do the modules. Now, interestingly, I didn't have an undergrad degree at the time I was 57 years old and um, they let me in on my 
very extensive career in dance and that was really lovely of them, but it was incredibly difficult because I didn't have one, the computer skills that <laughs> were needed for the course. And I had no background in academics. So it was really, it was a massive learning curve, but it was, it was great. And so it was through that course that I ended up meeting Nico, who you have interviewed. And he was, he did the strength and conditioning module. And right away I thought, I wanna do something for my thesis that will have practical application in the studio that could potentially see a change in how the dancers move and hopefully reduce injuries. Now in a recreational studio, which is my studio is recreational, but it would be kind of a high level recreational. Um, we actually don't have a lot of injuries. Um, and I think part of that is we're not, we don't have a massive training load the dancers aren't dancing as much. And many of the dancers do other activities. So they do other sports. So they're, they are a little cross training in some ways. Um, but anyway, we had to think of what we were going to do for our thesis. And Matt Wyan suggested that Nico was looking for somebody to potentially partner with on the research he was doing that it could be, you know, retest the 11 plus dance. And so I went and visited Nico. I didn't have any idea what I was gonna do. So it's like, oh, this seems like a good idea. And I loved what Nico was doing. And so it was from there then that I ended up doing that as my thesis. And that has just been a whole amazing journey um, doing that. Uh, it did take me, I think almost four years to complete my degree. Um, it was a very slow process. But I was able to become a visiting student at the University of Calgary. And it was really uh, Dr. Sarah Kenny that really helped me find that placement there and be accepted as a visiting student um, where they also gave me a supervisor. So I had a supervisor at the U of C and I had a Nico as my supervisor and Matt at Wolverhampton. Um, and I was testing in the human performance lab doing biomechanics, like <laughs> not something. I didn't even do science in high school. So it was, um, you know, I had very patient supervisors, let's put it that way, um, that really believed in me and supported me through the process. But so that's, that's how I ended up going from, you know, just loving dance to, starting a dance school in the process. I also started a dance company that's still going today, which is fabulous. I'm not the director any longer, but um, that company is still going. And then going full circle now through to the science side, um, I think has given me a really broad perspective on, on, on all of dance really. And, and I'm still doing it, so. Yeah, for sure. And so much of that is like so interesting I don't even know what to pick out but I would say as a side point as a trainee teacher I think hearing about the ethos of your school and what you've done your journey through that is really inspiring and I think a lot of other teachers who I know who listen will find the same so thank you so much for sharing that Karen um listeners can I'll link in the show notes Nico's episode so if they want an introduction or a little refresh of the 11 plus dance they can go and check that out but just for now could you just mm -hmm. give us a quick bit of background just a quick little introduction to it for today oh sure 
So the 11 plus dance is um, really a modification, a dance specific modification of the FIFA 11 plus. And the FIFA 11 plus was created as an injury prevention warm up program to help reduce um, AC, particularly ACL acute injuries in, um, at, well, in all areas, but mainly in team sports. But there, there's a strong body of research, particularly with female adolescents, and how um, this, these programs can reduce those injuries uh, for ACL. But there's also a lot of research within that on overuse injuries. So it was really the overuse injuries that interested me. Um, because we know that with dance, like 70 to 80%, um, we have a injury, injury rate prevalence of about 70 to 80%, and 77% of that is in the lower extremity. So I wanted to look at something that was going to really address that. And I also saw through the literature that it was increasing performance. So it was increasing jump height which I thought, well, that would be wonderful. You know, if you can increase jump height and you know, you're not having to work as hard in order to be able to jump that, I could see that that would benefit the dancers um, in not getting injured as much because they wouldn't be as fatigued. So anyway, that's how the um, FIFA started. And what they really focus on, so um, the 11 plus, whether it's, FIFA or the 11 plus dance, they're a combination of strength, balance, resistance training, agility, plyometrics, and sport specific exercises pooled together. And with the, with the 11 plus dance, all those exercises are pooled and then they're divided into um, three parts and two different sessions. So you're alternating your sessions so the dancers um, don't get as bored. And each part, each session has three parts where these exercises are divided. And then there are progressions. And I think Nico now is up to like four, at least four levels of progressions um, with that. So you can keep, um, you know, progressing your dancers along as they, as they get stronger and more able to do it. And so I really love that. I mean, I love, it related to me as far as dance goes, that there's a progression that you can follow. And a lot of the exercises, the way that he has taken them, um, adapted them slightly really makes sense uh, for the dancers and for the teachers as well, because they can see, oh yeah, airplane, right, arabesque, <laughs> these little similarities. Um, but one of the interesting things with the 11 plus is it's designed to improve the ability to generate um, uh, fast and optimal firing patterns, which we need for, for movement. We need those firing patterns um, move firing optimally. And oftentimes through injury that gets interrupted. We also need to increase uh, dynamic joint stability. So when we're taking off and landing jumps, and we need to um, oftentimes relearn movement patterns if we've been injured or if we have imbalances or if our imbalances have caused those <laughs> um, imperfect movement patterns. So I, I like that made sense to me as far as dance goes that I would, you know, you see especially adolescent dancers who are landing jumps with their knees collapsing in. We're always saying knees over toes, you know, they do a roll down 
in modern and their knees are collapsing in and here's, you know, we, we talk about these things, but we don't necessarily train the body for, for what we're asking it to do. And I thought the 11 plus would be really interesting to see if that could help, especially with that dynamic joint stability, because that's what I really see with adolescent dancers is as they're growing and they're, they're losing that sense, that proprioception. And, um, you know, they're, they come in one day and they're doing really well. And then it, it almost feels like for a period of time, which we know with adolescence and growth spurt and everything and hormones, um, you know, they just start to fall apart. So what could we do that was, di that was different than what we were doing that would help them? And so that is really why I wanted to try the 11 plus dance. I mean, I, I could have chosen Pilates would have been very simple for me because I'm a Pilates teacher. So, um, however, I knew from my own experience that even when I tried to rehab myself with Pilates, it worked to a point, but it didn't take me to where I needed to be to be able to ret really return to teaching, return to skiing <laughs> and all the other things I wanted to do. It wasn't till I loaded my body to really see that adaptation occur and for myself to be able to build back that strength and that confidence. So that's why I chose something that wasn't, um, didn't look like what I had always been doing. And um, yeah, so that's, that was really the reason for choosing the 11 plus. There is a massive body of research around it. Excitingly, the University of Calgary here is, is um, continuing a lot of research on the 11 plus. They're even going into schools um, within the city that have dance programs and are now teaching the 11 plus, not the 11 plus dance, but they are teaching the FIFA 11 plus in schools and they're seeing really good results. So. You know, it, it's something that is simple. It doesn't require equipment. <laughs> you can do it in a short period of time and they're, they're seeing benefit now even up to 10 minutes, you know, numerous times a week. But, but it's not like you have to do, if I was gonna do a Pilates class, I couldn't do a 10 minute Pilates class um, or a gyro class or, you know, something, <laughs> or even a PBT class. Like, yes, you can pull out some exercises, but the 11 plus just seem is, I think it's very efficient it's, and it's effective. That's great. That gives such a good overview. And I think that speaks mm -hmm. well for the potential of this. So the different settings, which is something we're going to look at today between what Nika looked at with it and how you've taken it, I suppose. Um, so in terms of your research, could you just talk us through your methods and your processes? So I guess, how did you implement the intervention, getting appropriate S&C supervision? I guess things that dance teachers listening might be kind of interested mm -hmm. in about their own studios. Yeah, uh, well, probably for a lot of dance teachers like myself, <clears throat> that would be something we don't really know anything about unless we've done maybe some kinesiology at university. But yeah, that was very foreign to me. And I did have to get ethics approval at two universities. So Wolverhampton and the University of Calgary. Um, and then, like I mentioned, I had a su supervisors in both places that, and it was really Nico that helped me design the study. So 
I was really fortunate that I didn't have to come up with an entire design of a study myself because he had already created this and he had already been testing that at Elmhurst. Um, so he was able to really give me that. He gave me the, the program for all of the exercises. We met on Zoom. Um, and well, actually, I don't even think it was Zoom then, it was Skype. Um, and he taught me the exercises. I mean, I knew the exercises, but because we can find the 11 plus exercises online, you know, you can, they're, they're not um, made up by Nico, you know, they are, they are standard exercises found in many, many different um, places, but he was able to provide me with the whole scope of it and then go over it, coach me through it to make sure I was doing them correctly and I understood what we were trying to achieve. And then I had already been working with the strength and conditioning coach. And so, and he was on, he was the strength and conditioning coach um, was also teaching at my school, teaching a conditioning class. So he supervised and helped teach some of the, the classes, especially for me to um, teaching a sport movement I don't know quite how to describe the difference, but it's different than teaching dance movement or Pilates movement. There's, there's an energy about coaching sport that, that is a little bit different. And these movements come were designed for sport teams. So there is a little bit of that uh, different approach in, in the coaching of it. Um, so that was really helpful for me to have that support throughout the study um, with the University of Calgary. Obviously I was, um, had approval to go there. And so I recruited 22 dancers from two schools. So one of the schools was my own school and that school became the intervention group. And then there was another school and they became my control group. So my intervention group, we, they did the 11 plus dance for 30 minutes, three times a week. Now, two of those sessions replaced the first 30 minutes of two of their ballet classes, which we can talk about that effect later. Um, and then one was an additional. So they already had this conditioning class going on and the 30 minutes replaced that. So really only one was additional. Really, yeah, they were, they really replaced. So in the one and a half hour ballet class, the 30 minutes of the 11 plus dance was really replacing the warm up time and a little bit of the class. So we did that for eight weeks, um, going through the whole protocol that Nico had provided. In the meantime, the dancers at the second school just continued with their regular training. So if they were coming in and, you know, sitting in second position splits as their warm up, then, you know, that was their warm up. <laughs> uh, it wasn't structured. That may have been a limitation. Um, and something I would look at down the road to have a little bit more control as, as we have off camera talked about. Uh, recreational schools can be a challenge. It's hard to control what's happening in there compared to a pre-professional school um, because the kids can be going off and doing lots of other things. Um, so we had the two schools. We brought both schools into the lab at the university and we tested them for counter movement jump and single leg counter movement jumps. So each dancer did nine jumps, which is actually a lot of data to collect because I was collecting hip, knee and ankle. So that, that is quite a, a load of uh, data. 
and that was for both groups. And then from the time after we tested the initial testing, then the dancers went and the intervention group performed the 11 plus dance for eight weeks. Then we came back, two dancers withdrew, one withdrew um, due to uh, non-dance related injury and the other due to scheduling, one from each group. And then we went back and we retested, we did all of the same tests. <clears throat> Unfortunately, well, <laughs> We thought we lost all the data. That was probably one of the most stressful moments in my entire life, even more so than giving birth, was actually losing my data or thinking I had. But we did find it and didn't have to redo it. Oh, it was terrible. Um, yes, and then I began the process of data collection. And um, that was really something to be going in and doing biomechanical um data so yeah that was that was our process it took a long time after that much longer than i realized the university gave me one year as a visiting student and i used pretty much all of that year to try to work with that data and um, my advisor at the university of calgary was just amazing in in coaching me through that because it's a, a massive amount of commute uh, computer work <laughs> So yeah, that was the that was the test, and so we were testing um, <clears throat> the counter movement jump. That was our main uh, variable that we were looking at. Can the eleven plus increase jump height, and can it uh, change the jumping and landing biomechanics of dancers? So that's that's why we were testing single leg as well as. Double. Sure. So a challenge in your research then, um, this is potentially a challenge that other people might encounter if using the 11 plus is fitting it into a recreational dance school timetable. So it's something we kind of touched on, like you said, just before we started recording, mm -hmm. but how did you do this? And similarly, any comments on buy-in from teachers or students? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is, <laughs> that is really challenging. You know, when you're trying to, when you're creating a schedule and you have dancers, they it's like, where do you put it in the schedule so you're not overloading them, especially if they're coming, you know, three nights a week or something. Are you going to add it in on one of those nights or can you, will they come on another night? Dancers generally, at least my dancers, they, they want to come and dance. They don't necessarily want to come and do a workout. So um, yeah, the buy-in was really important. There was the dancers themselves, um, really actually liked the 11 plus once they got going. And one of their comments was they felt ripped by the end of it. So, so they felt stronger and they felt more confident. Um, so that, that kind of helped. But I think the buy-in was because it, it's my school, which not everybody's going to have that opportunity to be able to say, I'm willing to risk my reputation, I'm willing to risk losing students and basically a lot of unknown risks. And I'm willing to take that because it's my school. And that's partly because I really believed that it would work and, and also because I'm curious and don't always think through all of the ramifications beforehand. <laughs> but I, you know, I just had a passion about it. I was sure that this would work. 
So I presented it, I got the parents together, the students together, and I presented to them what I was going to do. And I basically said, you know, if there was something you could do that would improve your dance, help you potentially reduce injuries, and make you feel stronger and maybe more confident, would you want to do that? And they're like, of course. And the teachers are like, well, yeah. And then I said, but <laughs> we don't have anywhere in the schedule to put this. So here's my suggestion. Why don't we take, they do three ballet classes a week. Why don't we take the first 30 minutes of two of their ballet classes and then replace that conditioning class with, with the 11 plus. And because they work for me, they, they couldn't, they, they could say no. And they did, they did push back a bit, but I guess I was convincing enough and saying, you know, it's only for eight weeks, but this was eight weeks before recital. So this started in March. So this was leading into the end of the year, into recital, into exams. Um, one of my teachers is a quadruple examiner with ISTD. She's absolutely lovely. Her name's Shirley Agat Proust. I'm sure there'll be people who have heard of her. And so she's, you know, um, a very professional, mature teacher. And she was the hardest one to get this by. And she would sit there and watch while I was teaching because it was the first 30 minutes of her class. So instead of her having them skip around the room and warm up, now I was taking over. And she sat there with her arms crossed and watched me. And slowly over time, I could see her starting to um, loosen up a little bit with what she was seeing as she started to see improvement. Then one day she came up to me and she said, do you have a list of those exercises? because I'd like to try some of those with some of my, she teaches many places, with some of my other students. And I knew at that point, bingo, <laughs> she's on board. Um, the other teacher whose class was replaced, she, she is just so open-minded and um, progressive that she was, she did it with the students. So she, she got stronger, um, but really it was because I think I have a, a have a credibility and relationship with my students and my parents and my teachers that they were willing to go along with me and trust that I wasn't going to do something really crazy. Um, so that's really how I got the buy-in. At the other studio, um, I offered that after the intervention, after the whole study was over, I would go and teach them the 11 plus dance. So then I did go during the summer to their dance school for their summer intensive and taught the 11 plus so that they had the same opportunity. It wasn't for eight weeks, but they did get to learn it. And um, so they were really happy for that and also for their teachers to learn how to implement it. So that, that was kind of the, the buy-in from for them. Yeah, for sure. That's so interesting about your teachers as well. Um, I think an interesting point, which we've kind of touched on throughout about the 11 plus dance is that it exposes weakness in unfamiliar movements. So because mm -hmm. dance technique maybe becomes so ingrained in our students in familiar settings, but the 11 plus dance maybe exposes things in sport movements that dancers can otherwise usually hide. Sure. So could you just tell us a little bit about this? Sure. 
one of the things that surprised us the most, uh, myself, the teachers, and I think also the dancers, was as soon as we took them away from movement that was familiar, plies, tendus, you know, the, the usual, whether that's in ballet or modern, and now we have them working, um, I mean, in modern they do work in parallel, but but not necessarily always jumping, doing like a squat jump or something like that. When we took them away from what was familiar, we found that they didn't have what I was talking about, that dynamic um, stability, particularly hips, knees, ankles. And they were able to hide that at the bar. And I think some people have talk, talked about this, that um, you can have rehearsed technique and then embodied technique. And I think, and I have not studied this, um, so this is purely opinion, but I have seen dancers that prepare for a ballet exam that learn the material in a specific order and they get corrections and they learn those corrections as part of the exercise. And then once the exam is done and they get a distinction or something, they come in and you put them in an open ballet class and they're lost. All of a sudden, those corrections that were ingrained with the movement, very specific movement, all of a sudden, they're not working in a free movement way. And that's what we were seeing because this was unfamiliar movement. They didn't know how to control their bodies. So they, they didn't really know how to move functionally. I mean, a plie is not a functional movement. We don't, we don't walk around doing plies. However, we do squat and we do a lot of the other exercises and movements that are in the 11 plus. So it highlighted that they could move, but not necessarily safely. So if we were seeing injuries, maybe it was coming because in basic movement, they didn't have the strength, but they could hide it through the technique and the artistry and everything else. I mean, there's still things that we could see, you know, knees over toes when you're um, doing a plie and are you able to hold your turnout and, and all of that, but all of a sudden bring it into a different format and, and it was falling apart. And that really opened the teacher's eyes. And at first that was really hard on the dancers because they thought like I thought when I first went and did that, you know, my first session at weightlifting that I was going to ace it because that's what I do. I'm a dancer. I'm a mover. I should be able to do all kinds of movement, but it didn't necessarily translate. Um, and it, it was actually quite shocking. We did video and this wasn't part of the study. It was just for my own interest. We videoed an adage sequence um, after the very first training session and then after the last training session, um, just to see if we would notice a difference. Um, and we did, and we can, we can probably talk about that later, but um, specifically to this, this question, I think that's why, again, I chose something. I'm glad I chose 11 plus and not Pilates. And I'm not, again, I don't, I know we have a lot of strong Pilates supporters, but I think it's fam more familiar movement. And this took them out so far out of their comfort zone. It took me as, as the teacher out of my comfort zone to learn to 
coach this kind of movement. I had to find new cueing. Um, I had to look at things differently, like, and I think we do this in dance, we look at where the movement is coming from. But for myself personally, I had not delved as deeply into where is that movement coming from? Or how am I going to, how can I change that at a, you know, biomechanical level instead of just knees over toes? What, what, what needs to happen here to make that happen? So yeah, it really highlighted that the dancers, I think dancers need to be, and we know that with early specification and all of that, that kids that do other sports and, you know, they're able to um, oftentimes, or even for myself, having come from a sport background, moving into dance, um, I don't want to say it was easy, but I had a different mindset kind of going into it. Um, and I had a strong body for it. I was already moving really well, functionally. And now we just had to learn how to stylize that and get, you know, create the dance skill on the physiological strength I already had. Um, so yeah, I think that answers the question. I probably went off on a little tangent there. <laughs> For sure, it's so interesting. And I think on the Pilates thing, I think nothing says that Pilates doesn't work. Pilates, there's evidence to show it does work, but I think what we're looking at here is what extent and how, I think it's about what you said earlier about how in 10 minutes, what the 11 plus dance could potentially do. So I think it's yeah. more to what extent, which you highlighted really nicely. And um, you mentioned last time we spoke very, very briefly, but I did find it very interesting. So I wrote it down and um, future developments of this research might need to consider a psychological aspect, possibly linked to the monotony of ballet training. Could you tell us some more? Yeah. Um, the, one of the things the dancers, the teachers noticed, actually, I don't know that the dancers noticed, but definitely the teachers noticed, was the level of confidence that the dancers had at the end of this period of time. And I think they were more confident in their own strength. They were more aggressive in their jumping. So the teachers really noticed a change in their jumping, in all of their jumping, not just Grand Allegro, but, but their ability like in Petit Allegro to be able to hold their hold their core when they were doing it. They were jumping much more efficiently, so they weren't getting as tired. Um, so it was really a, a confidence builder for the dancers and helped them approach dance a little bit differently. We're a non-competitive studio. I should probably have said that. So I, I do see in competitive studios because they have they're competing that the dancers have a, a very strong drive. But sometimes in a recreational studio where you don't have that, you have to develop that in the dancers. You have to build that, that little bit of competition or, and, and doing the 11 plus gave them that, like, can I jump further than this person? You know, how far am I, how many meters am I jumping now? And we could quantify it. Whereas in dance, we can't do that. Well, yeah, we can, now I'm turning, you know, single pirouette, now I'm turning triple pirouette. 
But dance is very hard itself to measure, to know, am I getting better? How do I know I'm getting better? But with this kind of um, work, you can tell you're getting better. You can hold your plank longer. You, you know you're stronger in all of the different measures or exercises within the class. And so that really built confidence. And someone said to me one time, dance is never complete or art is never complete. You can always make it better. You can always fix it. You can always change something. And that's partially because we can't measure. So we, we just don't know, are we getting better? And this was one way for my students anyway to know, wow, I am, I'm getting stronger. And so I think psychologically, it took also taking them outside of just purely dance was refreshing. And because they did it at the beginning of the dance class and then had to move right into dance, they had to carry it with them. And because the teachers were in the class observing because, you know, they had to wait while I was working with the girls. And so they're watching it. They're picking up cues that I'm using that are different than cues that we would normally use in dance. And now they're applying that when they're at the bar, when they're doing a rise and they're talking about actually the pelvis and as opposed to just pushing through the feet, how about lifting the pelvis? You know, we do talk about these things, but it was, it was just different. It was refreshing. And I think psychologically um, very empowering and confidence that is that word confidence building. Um, and I have heard that since from teachers in the city in the school public school system that have dance programs that have the 11 plus come in now saying their students are more confident. So I think a psychological um, aspect would be really interesting when we're changing the training so, so um, significantly or adding something that is really different that we look at the psych the psychological effects on the dancers. To start with, I would say it was a little bit negative because they realized how kind of out of shape, how poor their fitness level was. And that was really discouraging. Um, but that paled at the end when they realized how, much, how strong they had become. With the monotony aspect, and um, Nico did a workshop on specificity and he had a quote there and I can't remember Franz Bosch maybe, or I think that might be who it was, is the motor system only tries to learn if it's challenged. Monotony stops the learning process. And that's kind of what I'm really working on right now is are there ways, and we talked about this, is like how many tondus do you do in your life? Um, Yes, as you go through different levels of maturity and growth, you have to keep relearning because your body's shifting. But why are professional dancers, pre-professional dancers still getting, you know, having to micro uh, correct tondus? And I think part of it is, is this, it's that monotony as we've done it so long, it's like our brain just shuts off. So can we use some of these other modalities to say, how can we train a tondu without doing a tondu? What's the purpose of a tondu? And can we achieve that through another means 
so that we're not always doing that same thing. And that becomes rehearsed memory, you know, learning as opposed to really embodied um, the purpose of the movement. Um, so that's, that's just something I'm really interested in. And I think that's why this worked because we were strengthening them for the exercises they then went on to do at the bar and the center without doing those exercises. We took away 30 minutes so the teachers couldn't have 45 minutes at the bar <laughs> or an hour at the bar. <laughs> you know, they, we had already worn them up really well. So that, that time at the bar was shortened. They had to be more um, efficient with the exercises they chose for what they were trying to accomplish over those eight weeks because they were short 30 minutes. And yet the dancers improved. I mean, all those things weren't part of my study, unfortunately. <laughs> those are just, you know, um, my observations and the teacher's observations, but yeah. I think they're actually the important ones for any of the teachers that are listening. Absolutely, yeah, and interesting yeah. findings nonetheless, which kind of takes us on. Could you share some more findings from your research? So the ones maybe that were in the study, but also anything else that was maybe notable or interesting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as I said, jump height was one of the, uh, the variables I was measuring and that was counter movement jump height. Um, for those who don't know counter movement jump, it, it's done in a parallel position and we didn't use um, an arm swing with it. So it would be just like doing a little bit of a squat jump with your hands on your hips. Actually, we had their hands on their shoulders, sorry. Their hands were on their shoulders. So they weren't using their arms and they had to jump as high as they could. And we were measuring that, that jump height. So both groups, the intervention group and control group, significantly improved their jump height. Um, but the intervention group didn't um, significantly increase more than the control group. So both groups increased. The intervention group did increase more than the control group, uh, but it wasn't, uh, the data was not significant on that. Um, had they had longer, I, I believe that they would have increased their jump height more because I did need to use, and this was one of the limitations of the study, because the movement was unfamiliar to myself as well as to the dancers, we took more time for familiarization of the movement and learning how to execute the movement correctly because part of it was on jumping and landing. So technique was really important and that they were that they were doing the exercises safely and correctly, which didn't give me as much time to work on maximal jumping. Whereas if you want to increase jump height, you need to jump maximally. And we didn't get as much time to do that. So anyway, they did still improve their jump height. But where the significant change came in was not in the landing. We didn't see a lot of difference in their landing. They were already landing quite well, but their jumping strategy completely changed. Um, and this was very significant. Um, so they in significantly increased their hip extension moments and significantly decreased their knee extension moments, which meant that um, more higher forces were being generated at the hip and less at the knee. So if you think about that, that's taking some of that, those forces off of the knee, which is a smaller joint. 
uh, the hip is, you know, the pelvis itself and the hip is, is a much um, stronger, bigger joint. So we were taking some of the pressure off the knee and it had moved into the hip. Um, and that, so we, what we really saw the movement pattern change to a more hip dominant strategy um, and decrease the load at the knee. So we think, you know, we propose that this could reduce the risk of injuries occurring in the lower extremity. So hip, or sorry, knee and ankle by taking that load off. Um, and it was, again, interesting that the intervention group that did the 11 plus did jump higher and were still and still able to take that load off, even though they were jumping higher, that load off of the knee. Um, and so that was really interesting. We also saw quite a change, a significant change in the angle of the hip. So they had, you know, for, for us, for dance teachers, they had way more forward flexion at the torso. So they were bending forward more. They were trying to do all they could to jump higher. And um, that's not how we jump in dance. You know, we just, we, we stay upright. We have this more vertical uh, torso. And there was concern that um, with a significant change like this, would that affect the aesthetic of, of their jumping and their movement in class and in performance? And of course, you don't know this until you have collected the data that that's what was happening. <laughs> um, but we, none of the teachers noted that in class. That would have been something they would have picked up really quickly if the dancers were trying to do a saute in that kind of form. I mean, that would have been number one. What are you doing in these classes? You're ruining our dancers, <laughs> you know? Um, but that didn't happen. So the dancers were able to change that to a more sport um, or athletic way of jumping and transition it, translate it into their dance class with, with the aesthetic of dance. I think in the future, if I was ever to do this study again, I would test a dance specific jump, like a saute, because I think that would maybe give us a little bit more specific knowledge of, of how, how this is happening. Would they have done that in their jumping if they were in a dance specific position? I don't know. So, you know, that's one of the things that would be really interesting to look at. So those were the those were the major findings with significance in the decrease in the knee load and increase in the hip load and hip flexion angle or the hip angle, sorry. Yeah, that links really nicely into what we've kind of gone back and forth to throughout the podcast, I guess, is that the findings are kind of quite centered around performance enhancement and, and what you've touched on just there. So I recognize that this isn't specifically proven and wasn't um, but what might the implications be for this research for overuse injuries? Because like you've touched on just then, lower limb extremity injuries, there are a lot of the percentage of injuries in dance. So what do you think we might draw from this in the future, perhaps? Well, there is more study happening. And actually, um, the strength and conditioning coach that I worked with, his name is Sandro Ryich. And he has just published a paper. Um, we did our testing at the same time here in Calgary. And he also, he trained the dancer specifically in a hip dominant 
um, movement pattern and saw on professional dancers and saw a massive increase in jump height, like a very significant jump height increase. So as far as injury goes, um, again, it needs to be looked at more, but the, I mean, the main site for injury or the highest percentage would be ankle, you know, foot and ankle, knee, and kind of up the chain. And I think with taking some of that weight or, or that load out of the knee when we're in the jumping phase and the landing phase would help, especially with adolescent dancers. Because that's where we're seeing that lack of that joint stability. So if we can utilize the hip more, that is stronger and can take more than those little wobbly knees of these Bambi dancers, you know, as they're growing and that don't have that control. I mean, the, the control for the knees comes from the hip. So if we can strengthen the muscles surrounding the hip, I think we will be able to, um, it may be beneficial for reducing those overuse injuries of the knee. And pre predominantly, I'm, I'm thinking with adolescent dancers, you know, there is some within the 11 plus research where they're saying kind of that magic window, if you can get them actually even younger, you know, that seven to eight years old before they hit adolescence, if you can ingrain these movement patterns in them and then just kind of refresh them through adolescence, um, that that would actually be a way to go to establish this earlier on, I think, um, then we might see less overuse injuries. We can come to younger dancers in a little bit. Um, but just quickly first, what did the teachers notice in their students? You did touch on it a little bit, but why is this maybe particularly relevant for other recreational dance schools who might be listening? Yeah. So right away, obviously they noticed a difference in, in the jumping ability in all, area, all aspects of jumping. The dancers were, as I said, were way more aggressive in their jumping. Like they were really going for it. In fact, the teachers were having to kind of pull them back because they were just like really going for it. Um, so that was one thing. The other was their st balance or stability in adage. So on their standing leg, and for those that are dance teachers, you can just imagine, you know, a 13, 14 year old. Actually, no, I lied, mine were 14 to 17. So take a 14 year old that is going through, a, still going through a bit of a growth spurt and they're doing a développé to second position in as part of an adage. And you can just picture that standing leg knee collapsing in on so many of them. Um, it's just something we see all the time. But what the teachers noticed was a huge change in their ability of their standing leg, the strength on their standing leg and their alignment, that they were able to hold their alignment in the adage. And for that, with that in mind, then they were able to, they had far greater range of motion with their gesture leg because now they could stand on their supporting leg and actually access the range they already had. So for example, some of the dancers thought they improved flexibility, but we didn't do any flexibility training, but they were actually just now, they had the strength to access what they had. So this comes down to the video that we took 
at the beginning and then the video we took at the end. And so we were able to go back and watch that side by side. It was the exact same adage sequence. We were able to watch that and just see the difference in the dancers. It was, it was astounding. So that, that was really what the teachers noticed. Yeah, that's safe. Who doesn't want that? I know, literally. And about, <laughs> about students that I teach as well, like you can just picture it. And I think that's hopefully inspiring to teachers to start to think about implementing some of this. Um, mm. Are there any personal highlights of doing the research for you? Yeah, well, it, like I said, it was the biggest learning curve of my life. And I think what it taught me was I learned about my, my biases that I didn't realize I had, but that those have been ingrained in me through the tradition of dance training. Even though I came in late in life, I, I absorbed that. And I would say things, well, it's this way, or you do it that way without really knowing, well, where did I get that from? Why? Why is that so? And this, this study or the process of doing the masters taught me how to ask questions better and find answers. So not just go on, it's this way because this is how I think it is and how I feel it is. <laughs> um, I had to, I couldn't, nobody really wanted to know what I personally thought or how I personally felt. It was like, but what does the data say? And that was so against what, as an artistic person, that I was, I was just not used to that. I wasn't used to being challenged. Um, where did you get that information? Why do you say that? Um, so it really um, taught me how to learn, I think, and look at dance much more broadly than I had before. Um, and, and, and now I feel more confident in challenging the system and saying, well, I don't agree with that. Or it has been this way for a long time. Could we explore it differently? So for example, right now, I've uh, put a call out to my teachers and it's totally voluntary on their part if they want to be um, join my little uh, think tank. But, but we're going to start getting together. And this came out of really Nico's um, a webinar that he did, just that question, the idea of monotony and training. And we're going to come up with like five, six exercises that we see across the board that are used in all, pretty much all dance forms. And we're going to explore that. We're going to say, why do we do it? What are we trying to achieve? Where, you know, we know as teachers, the progression, but why? Why is it important? And start asking some of those questions and look at how we could teach it, supplement it in a different way. So they're not always doing the same thing. And, and you know, I don't know if I would have had the confidence to really do that before, but now I'm like, it's okay to experiment. That's, yeah, that's what science is. You know, you have a question, a problem that you wanna solve, or you have a question you need an answer for, and then you go and you explore it. And now I think I have the tools to know how to uh, design that exploration maybe a little bit better than I did before. And so that was, I also learned that 
um, you know, you can keep learning. That thing you can't teach an old dog new tricks is not true. <laughs> because if I can, at, at the age I was at, if I can go back and do a master's with not knowing how to even open Excel on a computer, anybody can learn that. And I think to be in this industry, we need to be curious and we need to be continually learning to teach. You need to be teachable. And if you stop that, your students won't, your students will stop or they'll stop at where you stopped. <laughs> so there is that um, desire to keep learning and growing so that your students can keep learning and growing and the industry can, can continue and flourish. So that's what I learned. Absolutely. I think I'm still learning though. <laughs> yeah. I think that mindset is something that hopefully teachers can take away from this as well as all of the findings because I think that's just as important and please keep us updated on what you're working on because <laughs> to hear more. Um, something exciting in the future maybe might be the development of a curriculum for younger dancers incorporating the 11 plus dance so tell us some more about mm -hmm. that. Yeah so back to as we were saying how especially in a recreational school how do you structure in or schedule in supplementary or complementary training? Um, how do you get the buy-in from the students and the parents? And yes, you can do a separate class, but how, you know, how many of those classes can you offer in a week to hit all of the kids? Or is it only the special, the, you know, talented kids that get to take the conditioning? I think especially after COVID, we're seeing, I mean, even just going back now, we're, we're back, this is our second week back with uh, a nine to one ratio, which is really exciting. But what we're seeing in our students is really um, discouraging in their lack of fitness, um, their lack of focus. There's just been so many changes that I think our, all of our kids need to improve their fitness and improve their movement ability. So I don't wanna just do a class for those that can afford to do the class and only those kids get to benefit. Um, Cause that's the, the, my personal philosophy and <laughs> philosophy of the school that, you know, I wanna make that accessible to everybody. So we're looking at taking the 11 plus and how can we integrate if, even if it's 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes in each class. Now, if they're doing as part of their warm up. So their warm-up would change. It would be the 11 plus as a warm-up as opposed to, you know, a more traditional dance warm-up. And how can we incorporate these exercises to look at what, what particular muscles are required um, for the movements that they're going to be doing? What do we need to activate before they start dancing? Um, what, do we, what do we need firing for us and how can we help with that? So we're looking at how we would break that out we, using the 11 plus dance and the three different um, level or phases in each class, taking a few from each one because we don't have to do all of them and working through um, which teacher is doing what. So, you know, this week we're, or this month we're focusing on these exercises and you're going to do four, these four and you're gonna do these four. And, you know, we're just right now looking at how we could do that and doing that right 
down to in creative ways, even with our five-year-olds. Like how can we include those things? You know, bunny, bunny jumps, which you do, you know, bunny jumps across the floor is, is basically, you know, broad jumps. So. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really exciting as well, thinking about where it might go in the future. Um, just relevant to COVID times, given that we're in them now. Something, it isn't really linked with the research or the podcast today, but I haven't really stopped thinking about it since last time you kind of opened my mind to it. So I'd love to hear more about your work at the moment in defining dance. Kind of, mm. yeah, you know what I mean. Could you just yeah. talk about this? Yeah. It, it was a real shocker to myself and I think most of the dance community here in Canada and maybe as well in the UK is when I opened my studio I had no idea what dance was classified as I didn't know I was classified under fitness I would have thought art or I would have thought education I didn't I didn't have a clue we were classified as fitness and so because of that there's been a huge problem with intensity levels um, because gyms have been closed because of high intensity and there's been <clears throat> uh, misunderstanding and lack of education about what dance is and where does it fit and what do we do. And when we came to, um, I've been helping an organization called Dance Safe Alberta. And because dance is not governed and has no regulating body, the government, and I'm sure in the UK as well, the government didn't know, doesn't know what we do. They don't know how we do it and they really don't know who to talk to or who to get that information out to. So, you know, we're seeing things come out, um, restrictions or guidelines. We're going, well, that doesn't work. Well, of course, they don't know how a dance class runs. So COVID has really taught me that we have taken so many things for granted. And especially because we often think of ourselves as artists first that we can kind of hide under that. Like we don't, I'm not saying putting artists down, but it's like, we love to do what we want to do just because we're so passionate about it. But it, we also have to have the um, professionalism to know that we also need to know the other side of it. You know, the legal side, the business side, and you know, all of those aspects. So COVID is really, opened my eyes to what I didn't know about the industry that I've spent my life in and how not knowing put us, well, me and, and the dance community in a really bad position. Um, we don't have a voice, you know, we don't have lobbying power and we don't have a seat at the table for decisions that are being made at a government level and coming down and, and, and impacting us. And I found that even within the dance community as teachers or studio owners, we, we even can have a difficult time defining like intensity, like the different stages of intensity in a dance class. How do we measure it? Well, the government wants us to be able to measure that now, to be able to say we're working at a low to moderate intensity level. So most teachers don't know that there's a mass of research actually out about that. That, I mean, Matt Wyan and Artez, and I mean, they're looking at training load and intensity, but there's a gap in the studio owners and the teachers and their teacher education 
there's, there's a gap between all of that and then the science side that is doing all this research for us to be able to help us, but we're not necessarily talking or we, I mean, we are starting to way more than, you know, five, six years ago, but, you know, we need to be working together. Teachers need to know there are resources there for them. There are people there that are advocating at a scientific level, but how do we now bring that together and be able to advocate for ourselves as an industry um, and get, get ourselves a seat at the table where they're making those decisions and put the people there that have access to this information. So when they're asking about intensity, they have evidence, not just, well, I think at a, you know, I think a Grand Allegro would be high intensity. Well, they don't know what Grand Allegro is. <laughs> so, you know, we have to be able to speak a, a, com a common language or not just assume because it's our history and our culture and so deeply rooted that everybody else has to just understand what we're talking about. Um, so I've had to learn how to explain these things to people that don't know what those things mean and be able to show them what's the difference between dance and a, and a fitness class or um, dance in a spin class or Zumba and ballet, because to them, it's all one, it's dance. Yeah, so it's, I don't know where, where this will go. I mean, there a little bit of a part of me is I don't wanna overregulate because there is that artistic creative side that we want to be able to have freedom to explore and express. And, you know, just, we don't want to squash that with science or, you know, regulations and government and all of that. But um, finding that bridge between all of that is I think going to be really important going forward because everything I hear is that we could be going in and out of this for another year or even longer. So how are we going to do that safely? And, and it's making the dance community have to be able to find those answers. And they're having to look to the dance science community for that research, so. And I think that shows, I guess, why it matters so much to dance educators at the moment, especially, but I guess it kind of also shows the importance of science moving forward in art and we'll never really know when we need it. So I guess it's important for teachers to just be aware of it generally, um, which I suppose is the point of my podcast, which is what I try and do, try and make it more like, accessible. But can I just say you're so real and so relatable and I think you're just the perfect bridge for this podcast between the teachers <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's been so lovely to have you on, Karen. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss or mention today? Oh, I feel that I've just talked nonstop. I mean, I guess dance has been my passion and my profession. And most people listening to this are going to be in the same position. Um, and I would just encourage them. I, I think particularly COVID is, has provided an, an impetus for us to, to, to examine you know, maybe our traditions uh, or not throw them out, but, you know, how can we go forward? It's, it's given us that opportunity to reflect and, and look, because I think dance is going to look different 
in the years to come. And if we are not prepared to open our eyes and um, if not um, try to hold on too tight to what was, but be able to carry that forward in a new way and with, lo with a loose grip. <laughs> I think we're going to have to do that. The children we're going to be teaching are going to be different than they, they were pre-COVID. I mean, companies now, like, you know, young dancers are looking at what are they going, will they ever be able to have a career in dance because companies, how long is it going to take them to get back up and running and how are we going to support our dancers? I think the psychological side and, um, you know, you interviewing all kinds of dance psychologists and that's, that is probably the biggest need in the dance community right now is, is really addressing the mental health side of things for a lot of the focus is obviously on the kids, but on the teachers, they've lost a lot in this process as well. And their world is changing how they've taught is, and you know, cause you're doing it, you know, now we're doing hybrids where we have kids in class and kids on camera and <laughs> everybody's all over the place and how, you know, we have to keep them in boxes. So how are we being creative with um, still teaching them the, the beauty of movement, um, but yet restricting them. Yeah, you know, for when I was growing up, it was all about coloring outside the lines, you know, that was a big thing, color outside the lines. And now we're telling kids dance inside the box, stay in the box. And I, I, I just wonder the implications of all of this. And I think we just need to be on our toes as teachers and people in this industry, and we need to be working together um, to solve that. So it's, it's a time really of building our, our international community of dance, um, sharing our knowledge and helping each other um, so that dance continues. Absolutely. And you've made me think so much today, Karen. I can't actually tell you, like, I've just got so much that I want to go and look into and research and think about. And I guess it's why I do this podcast is I've just had the best time chatting and I can't wait to put it out and share it. And I, yeah, it's just been the best. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I love to talk about all things dance and I think your podcast is, is just amazing. I love listening to it and I'm looking forward to, um, I just saw a new one came out today. I saw you post something this morning. So I'll be listening to that and hoping that, um, you know, anything I've said, yeah, take with a grain of salt because a lot of it is my opinion. Um, but if anybody also wants to contact me, if they have further questions, um, they, can, they can do that. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and I have an email don't know really how to use Twitter, but yeah. <laughs> you can find me out there and I'm happy to discuss anything um, that we talked about today further. Um, yeah, and hopefully one day I will see you in person, Jazzy. Oh, Maybe at an iAdams conference somewhere or when I can finally come to the UK on a holiday, that would be wonderful. Sure, and I can link your um, your tags and things for Instagram in the okay. show. Oh, well, thank you so much. Useful resources and contact details are in the description box down below. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next Monday for another episode of Psydance.